You cannot expect a Democratic Party that's seen 20 years of atrophy, 20 years of just being stagnated, and all of a sudden uh, 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 experience a wealth of candidates coming out of the woodwork to run for statewide office. It just don't work that way, guys. And it is a struggle for them to get uh, candidates on a statewide basis. Welcome back. That's right. We're back. We came back. We went on vacation. I, think, I, I have this in my head that every time we leave on a little vacation, people are like, well, that's it. They're never coming back. And, but you know what? We, we are. As long as they keep paying us, we're going to keep coming back. Yeah. And I think yeah. it was, and that might be because of that one time a long time yeah. ago when we were gone for this yeah, was, but that was COVID. Yeah, that was a, that was a COVID deal. You know, we, we left. Uh, we, we took the little break and. Uh, you know, and it, uh, and then when we came back, we came back and we're doing, uh, you know, remotely when we started. That was with the Zoom. And by the way, this is Alabama Politics This Week, and I'm Josh Moon. And the other person you hear talking here is David Person. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. I think I think that's exactly, you know, uh, oh, man, that's what gets in my head as well. You know, and it was never a fact. It was never a thing that we weren't coming back. We were just trying to make sure that we we had everything right when we did. And uh, and it was uh, sustained and, uh, you know. So here we are. We're back. We had a nice thing. Or I had a nice Thanksgiving. I had, I had like five Thanksgivings. So, Ooh. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I ate a, ate a lot of stuff. I've, I've had to do some exercise this week. Uh, <laughs> just, just get rid of some of that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, how, how was yours, Dave? I was great, man. I got to see some um, my son and some extended family uh, out of town. So it was great. Good. Had a great time. Yeah, we uh we we do had had one with friends. It was nice. Uh, played played a couple of good games there. Uh, you know, had one that was not so great with the family where we watched the Iron Bowl. I mean, it was great for until the final, you know, twenty nine seconds, uh, and then not so great. Uh, but uh, mm. you know, I heard about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you didn't watch. Oh, you didn't watch. I didn't watch. No, I didn't uh-huh. watch. Man, we're gonna, you're going to end up getting kicked out of the state if you keep this yeah. up with this college football. That's uh, you know that's just all there is to it. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was it was a nice time, a nice little break. Well, and and speaking of which, we'll uh, tell you now we're going to have another little break over Christmas like we normally do. Uh, we're uh, we're going to take off the week of Christmas and the week after Christmas, so we'll be gone for two weeks uh, there. So stock up on your episodes if you need to. Um, you know, maybe we can maybe we can throw up an interview or two as we've done in the past. Uh, um, uh, if yeah. you know, we have one and, uh, and you know what, it might be today's because, uh, we're going to have Doug Jones, um, mm-hmm. uh, today and with us, uh, he is nice enough to, to join in again. And, uh, we always love having him on because he's got uh, good insight and can, has been working with the Democrats in the state. And he's also done some stuff nationally, uh, and, and has been on CNN a lot. Uh, he's been on CNN more than I was back during the Roy Moore deal, mm. um, which is, uh, saying something but you know it's um i I wanted to get into uh first the the top story i guess uh for the week is uh the abortion debate uh they had the oral arguments in the mississippi case uh before the supreme court this week uh in which they're essentially um i i would uh, i would assume from the reporting now that they are essentially deciding between whether or not to just toss roe or only allow in the 15 week ban, um, you know, and uh, which, you know, a 15 week ban is 
a, a real reduction um, in, in what is currently available. Um, you know, we've talked before about this. My my feelings on abortions are are complicated. Um, I'm not a I, it. I don't fit on a as I wrote today in a in a column. Uh, I don't fit on a bumper sticker neatly. Um, uh, because of you know my thoughts and and the way I think there are a number of nuances, and I, I don't. I personally don't understand anybody that doesn't think of it that way, you know, and, and think of all of the, um, you know, the potential situations that are there for young girls, uh, for girls who have uh, experienced some sort of assault, uh, for girls who have simply made a mistake. And, and uh, you know, I, I just, I, you know, there are a lot of situations where I think, you know, uh, I, it, it would not be my personal choice. Uh, but again, it's personal, personal choice, uh, you know, and uh, I, and I respect others, uh, you know, up to a point. And, uh, you know, we, we can discuss what that point is. But I just think that it's, you know, uh, that's my problem. Um, but, you know, I, I take issue mostly with people in this state mm-hmm. who harp on this idea of sanctity of life. Oh, we value life. Oh, it's a sanctity of life situation. Oh, how in the world can you so mistreat babies? Oh, the, the sanctity of life is so important. We in this state are horrible at mistreating babies. We, we are. We, we are. We have the third highest rate of infant mortality in the nation. We have the second highest rate of maternal mortality in this rate, oh, a, a rate that is more than double the national average. Mm-hmm. And we have a worse uh, maternal mortality rate than Cuba. Uh, you know, so it, it's. I don't. These are things that we can we can fix. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's my thoughts. Yeah. Well, I, I want to start by saying that. Um, I don't think. I don't think anybody is um, takes the position that abortion is a wonderful thing that uh, brings joy, happiness, sunshine and daisies. Okay, I think most of us understand that um, abortion is a tough choice for for a mother in particular, uh, often in a challenging situation, whether that's medical, social relational, whatever the case may be, whatever the context is. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think I think that's really, you know, where we should start, you know, because a lot of the rhetoric makes it seem as though people are making a choice that is no different than deciding whether or not they're going to get a bottle of rum or a bottle of gin. You know, it's just not that way. So Mm -hmm. that's that's the first thing. The second thing I'll say is. um, You know, for me. For me, it boils down to some very simple principles. Number one, how in the world can we as a society make such a huge exception when it comes to the preference that we give to a mother and a child with this particular case, you know, talking about abortion? When in all other cases or most other cases, the state is extremely reluctant to usurp the rights of a mother, Mm -hmm. you know, 
we we use DHR and, you know, that's the Department of uh, Human Resources is what we call it in the state of Alabama. Some other places, they call it Child Protective Services. Right. We use those kinds of entities as a very last resort when we believe that there is verifiable, significant, urgent cases of abuse that have occurred. You know, it's a last resort. In all other ways, we defer to the mother or to the mm-hmm. parents. Why are we trying to act like um, it, when it comes to a mother's right, in my opinion, to choose what to do with her child in utero? Why are we acting like all of a sudden, oh, no, the state needs to get in there first and usurp the rights of the mother? In fact, not just usurp the rights of the mother, but actually dictate what happens inside a woman's body, a person's body. And to do that, uh, regardless of what kinds of conclusions, not only that the mother has made, but that her doctor has made. That just seems to me multiple levels of, of faulty thinking and er- erroneous faulty thinking there. Uh, yeah. The final thing I'll say, Josh, is this. Um, if we're going to be if we're going to be honest about this intellectually, most of the opposition to abortion is rooted in some kind of a religious context. Certainly. Now, what people don't often discuss is, and you, you alluded to this before, um, you know, what, what people don't often discuss even in these religious contexts, or at least don't discuss enough, is that you've got, you know, viable reasons, or valid reasons, I should say, where a a woman should, a woman's, regardless of how you feel about abortion, one way or the other, where you really should not be forcing a woman to carry a baby to term when she's been raped or when she's been abused, or is a victim of incest. Uh, you should not be forcing a woman to carry a baby to term because, uh, you know, when there's, there's significant concerns about the, the health impact on her. Yes. But in, in a lot of cases, in religious contexts, that's ignored. And also, what, uh, the final thing that I'll say that's ignored in religious contexts, Josh, is this. There is no consensus among theologians, whether you're talking about Jewish theologians uh, or Christian theologians or or Muslim theologians, and I'll just stick with those, the Abrahamic faiths, Mm -hmm. there is no real consensus on when life begins. And that's really where the argument rests for for most people that object to it. Uh, You'll talk to some Jewish theologians who will say, life does not begin at conception. Right. You talk to some Christian theologians who will say the same thing, you know, but yet we're trying to make this sort of, we're, 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 we're trying to make secular law mm-hmm. based on what we think are religious values or principles that are not even universally embraced and accepted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my, I'll say this, my, um, and, and there, there'll be a lot of people who disagree with me and, and I, I understand that. Um, but my, my position on this has always been this. We are, um, advanced to the point 
when it comes to science um, and medical technology at this point that we there that there is a means for us to determine when a that grouping of cells becomes an actual viable human being with with feeling and uh you know uh, some, something that could survive outside of the womb um and to me that is the point at which it becomes a human life and i you know whatever restriction needs to be placed on that I, you know, I, I think a reasonable restriction at that point in time could be placed on abortion uh, to the point of requiring medical uh, doctors opinions about what's taking place with the health and well-being of the mother um, and any other medical need that is there uh, and also exceptions for instances of assault. And, and rape and incest, I think all of that should be taken into account. But I do feel like that there is a point in time where that becomes a human being inside of someone. And, I, I, you know, I personally believe at that point there, there has to be some consideration to, to that human being as well. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe that it should the the considerations there should be greater for that child than for the mother that is carrying it. Um, and and I, matter of fact, I believe that the mother carrying it should have more, uh, more rights and 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 more ability to say, you know, listen, I, I can't, you know, I this is harming me, this is doing this to me. I, I think, you know, I, and so that's my position. Now, I don't want to force that my that's my position on people. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I, I do believe it's the same way. You know, I also don't believe you ought to be able to, you know, to to murder anybody else. You know what I mean? I, I That's my position on that as well. I, you know, another human being. I, and I I just don't um, I have a problem with that. So uh, I, that's my my point is I believe in I think all of these arguments and all of these things that we're having uh, at the Supreme Court and everywhere else. Uh, would be so much more straightforward, so much more um, acceptable to a large majority of people if instead of these, uh, you know, the ideas about religion and sanctity of life and this and that were pushed to the side and it was strictly a conversation about science science and health, and you interview doctors and you talk to them about what is best for their patients, what is best for the child that is growing inside of someone, uh, when does that, you know, when are, when are these benchmarks? What, how can you, how can you determine these benchmarks? And if it was set by that and not some arbitrary 15 week, 23 week, 18, you know, whatever, uh, if you could set it by that, and, and that be the determination. I think you squash a lot of this BS that takes place with with this stuff, and uh, you know, and I think we could get to something that a lot of people would be okay with. And to go back to your column, if there were not this political 
rhetoric, this sanctimonious political rhetoric about, you know, how we value life so greatly. But mm-hmm. then when the baby's born, you know, the state <laughs> basically says to hell with the, with the baby. Well, if, 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 um, you know, if the baby is poor mm-hmm. because the mother is poor or the family is poor, or if yep. the baby is struggling in school, you know, our solution at that point is, yeah, let's, okay, let's, let's put the baby in the, in the, in the, um, in what they call the cradle to prison pipeline. You know, yeah. let's, let's go ahead and let's build more prisons. Let's, let's create law enforcement policies and practices that will ensure that these kids, these quote, bad kids, unquote, get handled. You know, that's yeah. our, that's our, that's our post utero solution. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, we don't invest in education. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't invest in intervention programs and the kinds of things that have been found to help extricate children from poverty. It, the real problem with children post utero, the real problems that they face boil down to two things poverty and the lack of education. And if we would address those things, then I think we would really be demonstrating in a very complete, intellectually honest way, um, a pro-life approach to governing. But that's not what we do. Yeah, you're, you're, you're 100% right. And I think I'll tell you this, if we address the latter uh, education, uh, it would take care of the former poverty. Um, and, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why, and, and I mean, I don't want to get into a, a gambling discussion here, but I, that's one of the reasons why I've supported the gambling stuff so so vehemently over the years is I, I feel like that's our only pathway in this state to lifting the, uh, the you know, the kids that are in poverty up in some way uh, is by implementing this gambling plan and tying to it uh, scholarship programs, uh, workforce training programs and pre-K. Uh, now, you know, the, the president, uh, our current president, uh, that, you know, is, he's a Democrat. So he actually thinks about people that aren't just rich people. And so, you know, he, he has also included universal pre-K, you know, for at least the next seven years uh, that's paid for by the, the federal government. Um, and so in the Build Back Better plan that they're they're proposing. And I, I think that that's one of, uh, of the keys. But, you know, there are other things that go into that as well. Uh, you know, and, and you're right. It, as soon as that child is born in poverty, he becomes a pariah uh, in this state to the people that cl- love the sanctity of life, sanctity of life. You know, they, they won't expand Medicaid. They do little to to uh, narrow down the education gap that we have between the wealthy and the poor in, the, in our state. And as a matter of fact, they do a damn lot to expand that gap and figure out every way possible that they can uh, to create another pathway uh, for wealthy white children uh, so they don't have to be in school with the poor kids. Uh, and that being black, uh, Hispanic, or poor whites in a lot of cases. And so, yeah, we, we don't we don't care, man. We don't care about about life. What you care about is a political ploy that's going to drive people to the votes because you can use a picture of a baby uh, to say we're, uh, somebody is murdering babies. And you can listen at an emotional response from people that, that care about babies because who the hell doesn't, uh, you know, and. Yeah, that's all they care about. That's 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 the extent of their give a shit. There is 
the baby part of this. And that's what bothers me more than anything is you're disingenuous about this. You're not thinking about it. You're not, you know, you, you have a bumper sticker lo- uh, thought process uh, that you that you've taken hold of simply because you want to create more votes for yourself. And that's all that it is, uh, where if you actually gave a damn about uh, sex education or contraceptives or any of those things that would actually limit abortion, you would do a lot of those things. But you don't. You know, you don't do any of it. Yeah, look at our sex education in Alabama schools. It's it's so stupid. I mean, it's and, and in a lot of places it's non-existent because they get no backing from the state. And so the teachers don't even want to risk trying to teach it and hear from the dumbass parents that are out there. It's been a long time since I've been in that uh, that lane of parenting. Because of my son's age, he's a fully grown man now. But one thing I never understood, Josh, was the whole idea of not teaching kids about condoms. And I know that's a, you know, just one segment of the discussion. But, you know, at, at, it seems to me like if you don't teach kids about condoms or, or other forms of birth control, then, you know, you're just, you're just basically seeding uh, the point that a certain percentage of them are going to, as teenagers, are going to end up getting sexually transmitted diseases or young women are going to, or young teenage young women are going to become pregnant. I mean, mm-hmm. you're basically conceding that point. And, and I, you know, this, this, it's a very, the, the logic is very weird. You know, we want to, we want to, you know, we want to, <laughs> We want to basically not have conversations about sex mm-hmm. while at the same time telling kids not to have sex. Right, right. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it does. It's, it's, you're right, man. It's, it's so, I mean, and it's not just the fact of telling people, uh, telling kids about, uh, about the contraceptives. It's also, you know, in providing them. Uh, you know, there's this, yeah. uh, oh, there's this great stigma for, you know, well, you're just encouraging kids to have sex. They don't need any encouragement, brother. I mean, none. You know, it's I not. Know I didn't need you, any. Yeah. Who, who I mean, it, that's what, and that's what, that's what blows my mind. That's what blows my mind about this. It's not, it's like what you said about, you know, you don't want to have the conversation and then they're doing it. But also, you, you talk to somebody and you'll say, well, but didn't you have sex when you were a teenager? And they're like, well, yeah, but, you know, but there's no but. It's the same yeah. thing. You know, yeah. your kids are going through the same stuff. And, yes, now, it's uncomfortable and you don't want to think about it. But Jesus. That's right. Now, I will say this. You know, I, I did not have sex as a teenager. But I but I, I'll tell you, and there's only one reason why. Mm-hmm. I was scared. <laughs> I was scared of my dad. I was afraid of my father. Uh, you know, I was afraid of the repercussions. So, yeah. you know, um Well, I, I was afraid. I, I was did afraid of my things, dad too, but, but I, didn't have, I wasn't I didn't that afraid. You, so you weren't that afraid. Huh? I wasn't that afraid. Okay. Well, you know, I, I was afraid. And so, yeah. you know, me, I waited. Uh, but it wasn't because I was virtuous or because I was no, I was mm-hmm. just scared. I wanted to have sex. I was just afraid. Yeah. I kept thinking, man, if I have, a, you know, I'll, well, I can't tell this story fully. But anyway, <laughs> if um, I'll just say I was in a certain situation with a certain young woman, and I thought mm-hmm. to myself, man, if I get her pregnant, uh-huh. that's just going to be uh-huh. the end of everything in life yeah. as I know it. It was fear. Yeah. It was fear. Well, of it, was- it was fear of the community that I was in. I mean, I'm just, I, I just couldn't do it. 
Well, listen, there, there was there was obviously a lot of that fear and, and some shame and things like that, yeah. but that, that, you know, that went into uh, into a lot of kids thought process. And I'm sure that kind of uh, that slows a lot of kids down as well. And it should. It should. You know, you're not in any you're not in any situation to, you know, to take care of a family and stuff. But that's right. part of that's part of, I think. Uh, the the role of, of of quality sex education here in in our schools and and providing the contraceptives for kids. I mean, you know, as scared as most kids are uh, of that, and as shamed as they are by my parents and everyone else around them, telling them you know the consequences and all this and stuff. There's still so many who do it. You know. Oh yeah. I mean, we we, we see the rates, and so. You know, it, it's you've got to you've, you've got to address that at a point. It's nice to think, well, I can just tell them and they won't do it. It's just ridiculous, you know. Yeah, and, I mean, and, and fear has its limits. I mean, you yes. Know, as I said, I didn't have I didn't have intercourse, but I did other things. <laughs> and and at a certain point, when I was, you know, at a certain yeah. point, I was just like, fear. I don't care. Let's. I got to get this done. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a uh, it's 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 a reality. And and our insistence on, you know, just avoiding the reality of things is, um, you know, really well documented, I would say, <laughs> over the course of yeah. uh, the existence of, uh, of of all humankind. But um, at, at the same time, I just it's just despicable to me to listen to to you know, Kay Ivey with her ridiculous tweet about, you know, we stand for life. I mean, you know, get out of here. You know, you've been in there for a while. You could have expanded Medicaid by now. You know, mm-hmm. you could have opened up some rural hospitals that uh, that have been shut down. You could have done a lot of different things, but you didn't uh, because what you, you don't really care about the sanctity of life. You care about saying that you care about the sanctity of life. That's all you really care about. And that's, that to me is, is the worst part of the, the hypocrisy of this whole thing. Uh, you know, up to and including the, the rhetoric on both sides of this, that just boils this thing down to bumper sticker bullshit. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. Let's, uh, let's slide out. We'll come back uh, in just a minute to get uh, Senator Doug Jones. I'm going to continue to call him Senator Doug Jones because I also can live outside of reality if I choose to. Um, so uh, we'll get uh, we'll get Doug Jones on here. Uh, talk some good stuff. Uh, we're back in a minute. Alabama Politics this week. Hey, everybody. Just wanted to remind you, if you would, take a moment and go to your favorite podcast destination and leave us a nice review, if you would. Uh, also, don't forget to rate us if you get a chance. Uh, that would really, really help us out a whole lot here. And, uh, you know, maybe we could earn some money off this thing every now and then. Thanks a lot, guys. All righty. Welcome back. Alabama Politics this week. Uh, Josh Moon, David Person. We are happy now. Uh, to have with us uh, Senator Doug Jones, and I'm—I I'm, said earlier, I'm going to continue to call you Senator Doug Jones <laughs> because that's the reality that I want to live in. Okay, I don't oh, do any former stuff. Yeah, so it's uh, uh, as I've said many times, the 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 best senator, the best U.S. senator that we've had from this state in my lifetime. Uh, so we're uh, and that's it's a shame uh, <laughs> that we don't still. Uh, uh, matter of fact, we filmed a TV show this morning for uh, for Sunday, and uh, we were uh, we're going through. Well, you know, Katie Britt, if you really want somebody who's going to actually work for the state of Alabama, and I said, listen, if people give it down about really working for the state of Alabama, we still have Doug Jones there, okay? <laughs> so uh, you know, that's uh, uh, but but hey, we're we're happy you took some time, and um, uh, you know, I, one of the things that I wanted to get into. 
with you is just kind of a um, you know the the shape of Alabama politics and the Alabama Democratic Party uh, now and and where where you kind of feel like things are uh, and where you feel like what what we can do heading into the the election cycle that's coming up and and where the party stands. You know, well, first of all, guys, thanks for having me again. I always enjoy being with you and talking to you and and, and talking about things like this. Because, th- you know, right now, I think Alabama is in an interesting position uh, because we've seen what all has happened in the past. But you know what, Josh? I think you said something just a moment ago that is going to be the, the kind of, I think, where the, maybe what defines us going forward. And that is the question is, are people really going to want to elect people who are really going to do things for the state of Alabama or do things to the state of Alabama? I mean, there's a big dang difference there. And um, we had any number of, of members of Congress and public officials who did a lot for this state over the years. But it seems that in the last few years, despite the fact that we get, you know, we get some businesses that come into Alabama every so often. We've got, you know, relatively low unemployment, like the rest of the country has low mm-hmm. unemployment. We're not doing anything special about that. The fact of the matter is, we are still at the bottom of the list of everything good and at the top of the list of everything bad. And so I think that the question is going to be, as we go forward, what are folks really wanting? Are they going to just stickly stick to, the, stick to their tribes and, and vote straight Republican or straight Democrat? Are they going to look and see what people are really going to do for the folks in the state of Alabama? Because we've still got a lot that we can do, both on race, on economy, on education. We got a lot that we can do. And I, I, so I, right now, I think it, the jury's out on that. I think there is a slow turn, but it is a real slow turn. And quite frankly, the thing may set us back is these damn gerrymandered uh, House and Senate districts uh, that the uh, legislature passed and the uh, gerrymandered congressional districts. They're just, they're outrageous. They're just incredibly ridiculous the way that they have drawn these lines. But it will keep people in power if, if they stand. It's going to keep people in power who are only beholden to a small minority of people in their respective districts. And that's wrong. It's just damn wrong. Yeah, you know, I, and, and we're, you know, the, the the way it's already set up, you know, Democrats are, have got to win such a, a major majority anyway to uh, of the vote to to have some success in elections, and, um, and, and particularly here. Uh, it what what is. Yeah, I, I hear all the time from people about, you know, what what's the party going to do? You know, is the party going to run somebody for for Senate? Is the party going to run somebody for governor? And, uh, you know, and I, and I know and I've talked to Wade and, and, and other folks. And I, so I know that there are going to be candidates for for a lot of these uh, positions and stuff. But how when y'all look at this. Uh, you, the the state at the state level, you know, at least from your perspective, when you look at this upcoming election cycle, do you do you see it as a kind of a uh, you're laying groundwork for the for the future, uh, or or do you feel like there there could be some chances in some of these uh, higher profile races? I think there could be some chances, but it's going to remain to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say chances, it, it, it you know. Not everything for the Alabama Democratic Party right now should be chalked up as a win or a loss, because even being competitive in some of these races can be very, very important 
given the state of where the party had fallen for so, so long before my election in 2017. And so I do think that there are some folks out there that could make these races competitive. And who knows, lightning could strike and, and win. It's an uphill battle. We all know that it's going to be a tough statewide race. But, you know, the party, I believe, is really doing some really good work around the state of Alabama at the grassroots level, at the low level, at the local level, the city level, the county level, to try to start building the bench that we really haven't had for so, so long. And that's going to be the key. And, and when I went in into office and then started working to try to help rebuild the party, I kept telling everybody, don't take my election in 2017 as all of a sudden Alabama is turning blue. That's not the case, that we were still going to lose more elections than we, than we win because we of the, just 20 years of neglect of the party, both nationally as well as the state. So we've got a long way to go. You cannot turn the Titanic around um, completely in a, in a year or even one election cycle. We're, and I'm doing some work. I've got a group now. We're doing some research. We're looking at some Southern voter engagement. Because if you look at the census, Guys, if you look at the census, the state is becoming more diverse, and it, that that gives opportunities for uh, Democrats and candidates who are more moderate um, than what we're seeing from the leadership of the Republican Party, which is about as far right as you can get. And that's that I think is a is a is a going to be ultimately helps the Democratic Party as well. I just don't think. Republican Party can continue to put people like Michael Flynn on a pedestal the way they did here in Jefferson County or Marjorie Taylor Greene the way they did down in southeast Alabama. And that be sustainable for the majority of the people in Alabama. They're crazy. Those folks are just nuts. And uh, I just don't think that you can. I, I just I, I, I don't want to say that that's not where I even think the Republican voters are. Um, but, I, you know, that remains to be seen. So let's go back to Doug. Let's go back to the state of the Democratic Party. Um, you know, the first first of all, let's even let, let's start here. We've got um, a, a somebody who's a relatively prominent Democrat, Parker Griffith, who has who publicly announced, uh, I think it was last week or maybe it was the week before. I can't remember now that uh, he was, you know, endorsing Katie Britt to be U.S. Senator. Uh, Parker has done this um, without even knowing who the Democratic Party candidate will be, because one hasn't been announced yet, um, and, and has really sent, I think, a message, not just to Democrats, but to Republicans about um about his 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 belief that um you know a democrat just simply can't win in the state of Alabama and so the the best choice we've got is Katie Britt what what impact do you think that decision is having on the democratic party i don't think it'll have any uh, impact on the democratic party you know look there are already a lot of people in uh the state who are, you know, contemplate. Remember, we don't have party registration in the state. So you can vote in, in the Democratic primary in, in, in 2020, 
and vote in the Republican primary in 2022. You can't swap in the primaries in the, in the same election cycle, but we don't have party registration for that reason. So I, I quite frankly think that there will be, and there always has been, even in, you know, remember in my race in 2020, there were people who wanted to go vote Republican primary to make sure Roy Moore wins. You know, th there are things that happen like that. There, I had, you know, Republicans for Doug when I ran. And so there are going to be voices out there that have been associated with the Democratic Party. And by the way, y'all remember, Parker's a good friend of mine, and I, he was a big supporter, and I appreciate his friendship and support. But the fact is, Parker's been both, you know, straddling this fence and jumping on one side or the other now his entire career. So I don't think folks are going to necessarily follow his lead. They're going to figure out for themselves what they think is in the best interest uh, of the state. And they're either going to go ahead and, and bite the bullet and vote in that Republican primary, potentially for Katie, although, you know, Katie is, uh, there's a lot of the moderate Democrats who had those thoughts that are having second thoughts because she's, she's kind of moved more conservative, you know, and, and, and really playing up the right more than I think, I think she had to. But I think people are going to make that. But I don't think that you're going to see a big groundswell of of, of movement over that way because uh, of, of Parker or anybody else for that matter, whoever it was, I, even if it was me, you wouldn't see uh, that. I think people are gonna make that decision on their own, but I don't think it says anything negative about the Democratic Party. Everybody knows it's gonna be a difficult year for the Democrats, it, 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 and it has been. We're, we're away and we've gotta get the party competitive uh, and that's what we're working on. And that's why I'm really proud of the way that Chris England's been working with the party. But we're, we're not there yet. We, we've got a long way to go and we've got to build up candidates and give them the, the power. And we're, the, the changes in demographics and some of the work that I think we're doing on uh, my project is going to help um, get some voices out there that will make a difference. Uh, let me ask you another Democratic Party question. And I know that you're not uh, you're not Chris, you're not Wade, you know, or anybody else, you know, uh, that has direct uh, oversight over the party. But, um, you know, I'm hearing in some circles, at least not not everywhere, but I'm hearing in some circles that there are concerns. There continue to be concerns about uh, the party's viability. Um, and the concerns seem to emanate from a couple of places. One. The fact that we still don't see any major announcements coming out related to uh, candidacies in, in major races, you know, the constitutional offices as well as the U.S. Senate race. And then, um, two, there seem to be some concerns out there about, um, you know, I'm hearing little whispers and I'm, I'm not going to say things specifically because I don't want to disparage anybody without having any data to back it up. But there's some suggestions that uh, perhaps there's some financial issues with the Democratic Party of a serious nature. Uh, what do you know about these things? What are your thoughts about these things? Well, you know, look, as I said a minute ago, you cannot expect a Democratic Party that's seen 20 years of atrophy. 20 years of just being stagnated and all of a sudden uh, 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 experience a wealth of candidates coming out of the woodwork to run for statewide office. 
It just don't work that way, guys. And it is a struggle for them to get uh, candidates on a statewide basis. What you're going to see, though, just like we did in 2018, you're going to see some really strong candidates, good candidates in uh, more House and Senate races and county commission races and those kind of things. And that's what the Democratic Party's got to do. You cannot judge simply by uh, the statewide candidates. And the second thing is you're not going to be able to judge simply by a win and a loss. The party is working very hard at the grassroots level. We started this doing a lot of things uh, by, by increasing the uh, state Democratic Executive Committee and broadening that to be more inclusive and representative of the state. There's a lot of that that is going on. But, you know, Democrats, you know, are kind of like the rest of the electorate. It's kind of like, what have you done for me lately? And they expect things. Everybody thought after I won, we would have this wave in 2018, and it didn't happen. It was never going to happen. You cannot, again, turn the Titanic quickly. And, and, and when, when a party, and by the way, I've always wanted to believe, and I, and, and I maintain this, and I've said this for a number of years, we've never really had a Democratic Party as a party until recently. Before, when Democrats had, when everybody in the uh, state was, a, was a, elected as a Democrat, there was no Democratic Party. There was, it was only a group of people who ran as Democrats and the fight was in the general election and you had all these factions. You can't have a party, guys, when you have one side who is standing up for civil rights and the other side standing in the schoolhouse door. And that's what we had. And so when, when Republicans started making their way and started winning some races, Democrats didn't know how to handle it. They're still struggling how to handle a two-party system. But I think with the changing of our bylaws and everything that we've done, we're getting now a party that really means something. A party that's out there reminding people what Democrats did, like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, and bringing Redstone Arsenal to uh, Alabama and bringing the uh, you know various Corps of Engineer projects, bringing college uh, education through the form of student loans and those kind of things back in the day. Those are Democrats. We're all clean air and clean water uh, in the in, in uh, the federal legislation. That's what Democrats do. And so I think what our party is doing now on a statewide basis is they're really working on that. But it's not going to produce, and no one should expect. And in 2024, we're going to have a whole bunch of slate of candidates that, that can win in this, in this um, environment. We just can't. And we're not going to. But we're going to have some good candidates. We're going to have good candidates running in the statewide. And, and even more significant from my perspective is the candidates running at the local levels. And we are going to have more of those as well. And, and we're, we're, everybody is challenging. We're seeing a lot of challenges in redistricting. It's a whole another issue. In terms of the financial crisis, let me tell you something. Go on, go on and look and see how much money they've raised in the last couple of years. I mean, in, in, in 2018, and, and I think, Josh, you and I have talked about this before, in 2018, when we had really viable candidates, uh, you know, like Walt Maddox and others, our party raised about $8,000 to help candidates. Eight thousand. It would maybe a little bit more, could be a little bit less. 
they were raising millions in Georgia, millions in Mississippi, millions in Tennessee and, and other red states. Our party, because it had stagnated so bad, raised virtually nobody was going to get it. So if you look now, we are raising money. We've got a fundraiser coming up, a virtual fundraiser this week. You know, could could fundraising go better? I've never seen anybody who said it. Oh, yeah, it's going great. We, we don't need any more money. Not not true with the Democrats. We can always use more money. Uh, and I, I, but it's gone well. And, and they've got to make sure they got to spend it wisely. And that's a, I, that's always an issue, too. One of the you know, I'm not going to. I know there's a lot of rumblings and excuses, but a lot of those rumblings, David, are coming from people who are no longer in power by the uh, of the SD uh, at the SDC, the state party, who still don't like that. The fact is that Chris, Pat, Todd, and Wade, those guys are doing they're doing a good job uh, with the hand that they were dealt, and they were not dealt a good hand. And on top of that, you had COVID hit. You cannot. You, couldn't get have the get together. She couldn't have those in person things. She couldn't go the door to door and those kind of things. And that's really hurt Democrats because we are a very you know we're a party that depended on those. That's all going to change. It's all changing. Has been changing. So you know people just got to be a little patient and hang in there uh, and work because I think that ultimately the Democratic Party in Alabama is going to be on the right side of history the way that uh, we have been on the last few decades. Uh, we weren't always on the right side of history, but I think we are now, and I think we're going to continue to be. Uh, unless you have something else, David, I was going to switch gears just a second uh, here. Uh, uh, and Josh, I only had one thing. Should I, should I put on my aviators? Yeah, I think you probably should for this one. Yeah, I think you probably should for, for my question. But that, David said he had one, one, one more. Yeah, just one other thing, actually, Doug. I just wanted to know, because I don't know if people are really aware. What? Just tell us what you're doing these days. <laughs> You know, and I appreciate you asking. I'm really incredibly busy. I've been very, very fortunate after the election and then after the kind of beauty contest I had uh, with the Department of Justice. Uh, you know, I really kind of sat back to try to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, what I knew I didn't want to do was just to spend all my time lobbying, but even though I could probably make a lot more money than I make. So I'm working on a bunch of different things, David. I, I, I'm affiliated with a law firm, but I'm not doing lobbying up there. I'm not, I'm not doing as much legal work as I used to. I'll be doing some, but it's a lot of government relations strategy, working with a lot of folks. We've got some, uh, the firm is Eric Fox. We just announced a, a, a merger with a, a law firm out of Chicago, Schiff Harden. It's going to be about a 600 person law firm once we merge, it's 400 something now. Uh, I've been doing some international work. I've been traveling uh, this summer and early fall, doing some international work and international travel. But I'm also a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a really great think tank for democratic policy and ideas. You know, I laugh and tell folks that that once you get to be my age, every organization you belong to seems to have the word distinguished senior (laughs) or uh, or former in front of it, okay? and. So I'm doing that, but I've also got, I'm going to be teaching. This has not been announced yet, so I can't go into a lot of details. I've got a couple of days a week. I'm going to be teaching at a law school up north, uh, which I'm really excited about, just two days a week. And then I'm working on several projects. I've converted uh, some uh, of my leftover campaign money to the right side of history pack, and I'm going to be out there a lot in the coming years, um, in 2022 and beyond, uh, helping 
uh, candidates that I believe in, candidates that believe the same way as I do, trying to pull some things for the Democratic Party in a way that I think can help us move forward. And we're struggling right now. And I, I, I have to be candid to say that. And I think the PAC is really going to be able to raise some money, do some things and help some candidates. And then I got a separate venture uh, uh, that we're working on where we're doing some research right now. We've we've started doing a real deep dive and doing some research into Southern voters uh, and Southern voter engagement. So I am really busy, a lot of fun things going on. And and quite frankly, a lot of things that I think uh, can make a difference in Alabama, in the South, and to some extent across the country. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was the beauty contest with the uh, Department of Justice, um, which I was very, very disappointed in uh, in the outcome there. I think you know that. We've talked about that. Um, and I have continued to be disappointed um, with the speed with which some investigations have, have unfolded, uh, with the lack of, uh, I, th- I think, a hard-nosed, um, really aggressive, uh, the lack thereof, a really aggressive prosecution of things that took place on January the 6th. Um, and the, really the people behind January 6th and also the former president and some of the things that he has done there. And I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts. I know you, uh, you, you lost the beauty contest, I guess, but, uh, and, and I, so I don't want you to do anything that's in bad form or anything like that, but I, I would like for you to, you know, to talk about what, you know, what, you would have done, and especially if it's anything that you would have done differently. Well, you know, it's hard to say what I would have done differently because, quite frankly, we don't know what all is going on with the Department of Justice. That's the way criminal investigations are set up. You don't know a lot of what's going on. You don't know what's happening in front of every grand jury. We saw Mm -hmm. them move with real speed. Uh, to get the early indictments. And now those are just now coming to a conclusion with sentencing. And more and more, you're seeing folks that that at least seem to indicate to some extent that they may be cooperating some. We just don't know how far. So I don't think that we can absolutely criticize DOJ just yet about what they're doing and not doing. Um, I've been kind of like some of the judges, a little bit concerned that some of the early sentences were not as great as what I thought they should have been. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, again, there's a lot of things behind that that we may not know. What I do think about January 6th is that the January 6th committee in the House is really doing God's work right now. They are really working hard in a way, and and I'm going to be candid about this. After After the Republicans blocked an independent commission, which I thought was crazy. I mean, I I thought that an independent commission was what this country needed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone, people that were not uh, in Congress, that were former public officials, former law enforcement, others that had good reputations that could do it like a 9-11 commission. I thought that was needed. And when it failed, I was very concerned that uh, Chairman Thompson's uh, committee would would be seen as a purely partisan committee and that they would not have the discipline to act in any other way other than as a partisan committee. And I, I, quite frankly, was saying, let's just don't do it. Let the Department of Justice handle it. And I I am so pleasantly uh, not surprised, 
But I am so uh, pleased with the way I see the January 6th committee working in a, in a bipartisan way, even though there are a lot of Republicans that don't consider it that way. The fact is they are being very deliberate. They're being methodical. They are looking at this thing from every angle, which is exactly what they should be doing uh, from the president on down. But they've not just completely focused on the president. That was my biggest fear that we would have a Benghazi-like committee. And if you remember, all the Benghazi committee did was focus on Hillary Clinton uh, for political reasons. This committee's not doing that. Yeah, there are people surrounding the president that have been subpoenaed, and they should be subpoenaed. But there's so much other work that's being done as well. So it, it remains to be seen. I think the committee needs to be very, very expeditious, because if the House uh, flips in uh, 20, beginning in January of 2023, that committee will be dissolved. And they need to get their work done regardless. They need to get the work done and the report out. I think it's going to be uh, very telling. And, and you never know where that might end up in terms of prosecutions uh, as well. I think we've got a long way to go. This is, this is a big deal. It involves a lot of people. And it involves a lot of public officials from the White House on down. And so we, we've just got to be a little bit patient, um, on the, at least on the January 6th part. Well, you know, I, I'll say this on, on the Benghazi thing. I would be okay with it being a little more like Benghazi just because in this particular instance, the guy at the top actually did things, you know, and uh, uh, unlike with, with Hillary Clinton, I, you know, I, I you know, the, the lack of, uh, I, the lack of angst at the, at Mar-a-Lago uh, right now, it bothers me a lot uh, that, yeah, that Trump is not more uncomfortable. Here's the thing, though, uh, Josh, and I, I really do believe this. I think the committee is focused on everything that they need to be focused on. But from a public standpoint, I, I can just tell you from a public standpoint, if they had been out there every day talking about the former president, talking about the big lie, talking about this. And that was the focus of what they're doing. And they're not, they're being very disciplined in their message. Then people would shut them down. I can just tell you every time right now, if you, if you start talking about anything like that and mention either the former president or um, the, even the big lie that they know is a criticism of Donald Trump, they shut down and they become myopic and they don't want to see uh, the verse. So it's not just a question. I believe they're doing their job and doing it the way they should be doing. It's the public relations aspect of it that I think that they're doing a very, very good job of managing so that when they do have a report, it's not going to be seen in the same way that the Benghazi was seen. There will be some, of course, that see it that way. But I think it's going to be very much, much more acceptable to the overall uh, in the American public than they would if they really focused publicly on the former president. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. I, 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 you know, I, I just, to me, it's man is dragging, you know, it's um, it's dragging. And, and I worry that my concern is I know what you're saying in terms of substance and, and, and maybe that should always be our focus is, is substance. But I, you know, I look at an American public that, were, that, that was so swayed 
by by that Benghazi investigation in a lot of ways uh, to the point that you know we elected a crazy person. Um, uh, you know, I think that played a role in that, and uh, I just you know I fear that they're losing the the public here, and that's uh, going to cause problems in the future of being able to to prevent something like this from happening. Uh, you know, I I know that there's a right way, and I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you that 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 this is the right way that they're doing it. Uh, you know, in in terms of getting to the substance of the matter and making sure that they follow the laws and being disciplined, I, I agree with what you're saying. I just I worry we're in a climate now where those things are less rewarded by the American voter than, you know, the more public uh, proclamations. It's it's a fair point. But at the same time, remember, you know, we're we're only 11 months from what happened on January 6th. And it took a while to really. it, It took a while to try to get your bearings after that. I mean. I don't think people fully appreciated the fact of what that caused, the chaos that it caused within the government. And, you know, the January 6th is right at 11 months. The administration didn't come in until January 20th. And between that and transitions and a new Congress, which the Democrats control as opposed to Republicans, there, there's a lot that has to be done. And again, I understand what you're saying, and I, I, I don't disagree with you, but what I believe is going to happen is after the first of the year, once the, there's been so much that's been gathered in, the, in this 11 months, Josh. I mean, if you go behind yeah. what they're doing, then, man, I'm telling you, they are, they are working hard. And at some point, that's going to come start rolling out and it's going to be they're going to have more public hearings and they're going to do things and you this committee has only had one or two public hearings they're going to have more you're going to see more of this information coming out in the coming year and that's where the rubber meets the road and that's why i think they're doing such a good job now laying the groundwork for those hearings that won't be seen as partisan as as the way the Benghazi thing that's at least the way i've seen it now so we, we, we can't forget, and I tell people about, you know, the Biden administration and all this all the time. Hell, he's only been in office for 10 months. You cannot completely change the world, especially after four years of Donald Trump. You can't completely change all of that in, in 10 months. And, you know, you've got to let you've got to let them work. And there's there's really, you know, candidly, there is a little bit too much inertia in Washington, D.C. I felt that I saw it. Uh, and you can do some things quicker, but at the same time, our government takes some time to function, and it, and we do have competing interests that we're that everybody is working on as well. So um, it's I, I think we're in pretty good shape actually uh, on all of this. Let's just let's just keeping let's just keep looking at the glasses half full right now until we we, we realize that it may not be. Well, I think that's all very fair and and level headed and insightful, and you know somebody like that would have made a great AG. Um, but, you know, that's just, uh, yeah. just me. Yeah. Just me. You know, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. But hey, listen. Uh, we we I know we kept you for a while, um, and uh, but we we always appreciate it, man. It's uh, it's it's really nice to have you on, and uh, yeah, I hope you don't get so, get so busy with all this other stuff that uh, you know you forget about folks down here. Oh man, look, I'm still spending a lot of my time here, most of my time in Alabama, because 
Uh, the one thing about it, I, my wife and I, we we not we don't want to move to Washington D.C. We love it here. I love the people here. I get frustrated as hell here. Uh, there's no question about that. But you know what? I, 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 the things that we got going, just stay tuned. Uh, there's some good things happening, and it, it just it just takes some time. We didn't get where we are uh, overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. But I am I am very hopeful about the state. I'm very hopeful about the party, the Democratic Party, both uh, in Alabama and nationally. Uh, but sometimes you got you to gotta hit some low points before people stop and realize that, you know, maybe we should be doing things a little bit different. And I think folks are beginning to see some of that now. We'll see how it plays out this coming year. But regardless, uh, I, I just think that uh, there's some good things ahead, and I, I hope to continue to be a part of that. Well, we hope you do too, and, uh, and and really, really thank you for coming on and spending some time, and for all the other stuff that you've been doing, and, uh, and we we really do appreciate it. And uh, you know, we were we were lucky to have you for a short time. Uh, so, but uh, I hope you stay involved, and and thanks again. You got it, guys. Appreciate Good it. Good to see you, time. Doug. You all too, right. David. As uh, Doug, Doug Jones, our, our senator for life here uh, on Alabama Politics this week, uh, we'll, we'll just continue on calling him senator. So uh, we're going to slide out. We'll come back in a few minutes, wrap this baby up. Alabama Politics this week. All right, welcome back. Alabama Politics this week. Josh Moon, David Person. Uh, I appreciate Doug Jones coming on. And uh, that was a good conversation. Um, and uh, I think some people will, will get uh, some some good stuff out of that. So, uh, but we uh, we wanted to move on. Speaking of good stuff, we we did actually have uh, some good some good news this week, right? I mean, we get, we got a new uh, poet laureate for the state. As yeah, uh, it's it's good news. It's also um, a little I don't want to say comical, but it's it's definitely. <laughs> Ironic, let's yes. say. Uh, so, um, uh, Governor Kay Ivey, who we talked about extensively in the first segment, in a in a critical way, uh, did something that I think was positive this week. She paid tribute or recognized the state's <clears throat> first black poet laureate, and mm-hmm. this is a young woman who teaches at. Uh, <clears throat> A, uh, a creative writing at a school in Birmingham. Her name is Ashley Jones. Mm-hmm. And um, she um, she is, um, let's see, I'm trying to find the name of the school. I can't remember the name of the school. But anyway, uh, Miss Jones teaches creative writing at one of uh, the Birmingham schools. She uh, has also written some books and and uh, and has done some other poetic writing and what's what's ironic to me you know I'm glad that she was selected and the the selection process apparently is done by a group called the Alabama Writers Cooperative mm-hmm. so it wasn't like the governor uh, selected her right but the governor's a, acknowledging her selection but I just think it's ironic that this young lady has written about like reparations. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not like some um, conservative leaning, at least not based on what I've read about her and her work. She's not some conservative leaning poet, 
mm-hmm. a writer. So it's just interesting to me that she was selected and that Governor <laughs> Ivy was acknowledging that selection. That's just interesting. Well, you know, the, I think those uh, those crafty uh, writers in the writers cooperative right there, you know, slid one by uh, and uh, we're just, uh, yeah, I mean, and listen, it's a pretty safe bet uh, to, that you could do this if you were in the uh, and, and 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 say to, you know, here's our, our new poet laureate, because, you know, unless there's a picture with a cat with a giant hat on the front of the book, most of our Alabama politicians are not reading poetry. OK, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, they're just not. And uh, it, it's uh, so so, you That's know, right. they're like, ooh the poet laureate. OK, then have you read green eggs and ham? Yeah, here you go. Uh, and uh, that's it. That's the extent of uh, of their knowledge of this. And so it, it's yeah, you're right. It's it's nice that she was because she deserves it. And uh, it's a good selection. And But, you know, it, it, it was a pretty safe bet that nobody was going to actually check to see if she fit in with the uh, the anti-CRT crowd uh, in Montgomery right. uh, that, that where they currently reside. But no, it's uh, you're right. It's a, uh, that's pretty, it's pretty funny. Cause I saw the, the photos of Kay Ivey giving her the award and uh, you know, the commemoration and all that. And it's was. Yeah. And, and so the, um, the poem from her recent book about reparations <coughs> also takes a shot at former governor, George Wallace. It's called reparations. Now reparations tomorrow, reparations forever. You know, and yeah. then there's an excerpt here. What you think all I want is money. What you think money can ever repay what you stole. Give me land. Give me all the blood you ripped out of our backs, our veins. Give me every snap neck and the noose you wove to host to hoist rather the body up. Give me the screams you silenced in so many dark and lustful rooms. Give me the songs you said were yours, but you know, came out of our lips first. Give me back Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers. Give me back the beauty of my hair, the swell of my hips, the big of my lips. Give me back the whole Atlantic Ocean. Give me a never-ending blue and a mule. Wow. Mm. Wow. Hmm. Powerful stuff. Yeah, Yeah. I guarantee you nobody, uh, no, no white person in Montgomery read that. Uh, no, you know, no, because yeah. if they had, I don't believe Kay Ivey would have been up there acknowledging her. By the way, Miss Jones teaches at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. But um, that's but a yeah, fine school for her to be teaching at. It, it really is. And, uh, and they're lucky okay. to have her. Yeah. They're lucky to have her. Lucky yeah, I would say her. so. I just I think it's ironic. And again, you know, with all of this anti-critical race theory talk, mm-hmm. you know, you would think even more so that somebody would have. <laughs> It's just funny. It's ironic and really yeah. almost funny. Really, it's almost comical. Uh, it's uh, it is it is comical. It is uh, you know right in the in the height of this. But it you know listen, it goes. Uh, what are you going to say? Because it goes to the you know the farce that is anti CRT. Uh, you know, and and now you, you've seen it. I don't know if you've seen the stories recently from the folks in uh, in Tennessee where the group there is trying to block uh, the teaching of uh, of Martin Luther King's March on Washington um, and what? and what went on there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. A hundred percent. Because, you know, it teaches racism to little kids, you know, and they, they don't really know about racism and, unless we're teaching that to them at home, uh, you know, mm. and that and that's, you know, it, it's just. 
I, I don't know what to do. And, and I, you know, we mentioned the the commemoration, and that brings also to another thing that that took place uh, this week. Uh, what December first is Rosa Parks Day. You know, obviously the the day she was arrested uh, and, and began the uh, touched off the bus boycott. Uh, but Rosa Parks Day in Alabama is a is not a state holiday. It's a commemoration day. Uh, right. You just uh, commemorate it. Hey, it's Rosa Parks Day, and everybody goes to work and acts like it's a normal day. Because listen. You can't just get out state holidays for anything. You can't just do it for for all 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 people and stuff. I mean, these are important stuff. You know, Christmas and Thanksgiving and Robert E. Lee Day and Jefferson Davis Day and Confederate Memorial Day. You know, you gotta have it. You can't just honor anybody. I mean, you know, come on. I mean, it's you know, we we split Martin Luther King Jr. Day yeah. with Robert E. Lee Day. That's what we do here. That's an affront. That's an affront to me as a as a black man. But it also should be an affront to, I think, any true freedom loving Alabamian. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert E. Lee was fighting to preserve slavery. I believe that Martin Luther King Jr. more than any living or any American who's ever lived is single-handedly responsible for saving our nation. I think he's the most important American to have ever lived. Not, And that's not to say that, you know, Mrs. Parks and many others mm-hmm. haven't made great contributions. We've had presidents, obviously. And, I mean, there are many, many people who have been integral to the development of our nation and to its survival thus far. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anybody has made more impact. No single person has made more transformative impact on changing the course of our nation than that man. And the fact that he would be honored, supposedly, by our state on the same day that we're honoring Robert E. Lee is an affront to me. Well, I mean, you know, they do have that nice statue of Martin Luther King Jr. there on the grounds of the Capitol. Oh, wait, no, wait, that's Mm. Jefferson Davis. Mm. Um, You know, uh, it's, Mm. you know, uh, and and people people wonder why there is a need for critical race theory discussions. Um, This is why. This is why. This is because you have uh, erected monuments to people who enslaved people uh, and fought for the enslavement of, of people and who, after it was over with, said that they would do it again. Because protecting white supremacy was was a cause worth fighting for, uh, you know. And that was Jefferson Davis. Um, uh, Robert E. Lee was. I mean, you know, people have this revisionist history of Robert E. Lee that, that goes back. But uh, it, we we know the truth about what he was doing, who he fought for. He had a choice. There were people. Listen, there were people living in the South, uh, a military men uh, living in the South who chose to go and fight for the North because they believed that cause uh, to be more noble. They That's did right. that. Uh, right. And so they knew there, this idea that there was, oh, it's just the way it was. I mean, to a point, yes. But at the same time, there were people who knew better and went and chose the better side of this. And so you could honor those people or you could just not honor any of them, you know, and and honor people who actually deserve it. Uh, I'll, I'll remember, man, the the maddest I have. I, I think the maddest the people in state government have ever been at me 
Hmm. Is the night you know when they when people started tearing down uh, some of the Confederate monuments? You know, protesters mm-hmm. started tearing, and I started tweeting out locations of Confederate monuments oh, in Montgomery. You? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Hey, listen, I'm not saying anything, but there's a Jefferson Davis statue on the Capitol grounds. You know, uh, looks like it's a little top heavy. I don't know. Yeah, uh, you know, what you do about that is up to you. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, listen, no, you know, I didn't say, yeah. Yeah. One stick of dynamite would probably solve it, but um, it, it's <laughs> listen. I, you know, I, I, I just think it's you. You can't tell me, you cannot tell me that it's okay to to erect this monument and to have this monument to the first uh, president of the Confederacy on our Capitol grounds, and then, but it's then wrong to have classes in which students learn about the atrocities committed by him and others and, and how those atrocities then fed into other atrocities and how, uh, you know, the, the, the false narrative of, uh, you know, the war, the aggression of the North and all this stuff came about afterwards, uh, you know, to try to excuse what the South had done, uh, in, in terms of keeping people enslaved, uh, and then how Jim Crow laws furthered that and how it just continued on, uh, with these, these problems with, with discrimination nation and a lack of equality. And you know what? If you're not teaching that to people, you're not teaching them what's actually happening and how their neighbors are, why why so many of their neighbors who are minorities are living in poverty right now, because that was the only damn pathway that they had was to that. Uh, You know, and and instead you're teaching this false narrative of, well, you know what? They just didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, that's a shame. (laughs) Well, what they're really doing, and and I mean, this takes us back to Rosa Parks what and her tremendous contribution, uh, which I didn't mean to diminish uh, by going off on that tangent about Dr. King. No. Uh, but what, what they really are trying to do is to, is to erase the fact that there was governmental complicity mm-hmm. in, in what happened to black people, the descendants of slaves and native people, and even other people of color. There was governmental complicity. There were policies that were instituted that were designed specifically to hold people down because of the color of their skin or their ethnicity. And, and what Rosa Parks did was, uh, was, basically, was basically take a stand against that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it was a courageous stand, especially for a black woman to make. But then she was a very courageous black woman, you know, somebody yes. who investigated uh, rapes against black women in the South and and how they were used to terrorize black women and their families. All of that even before the Montgomery bus boycott. So she was a mm-hmm. very courageous, very courageous woman. But yeah. But uh, but yeah, this this whole attack on critical race theory, it's a cover up. It's designed to try to obscure the complicity of the institutions of our government and our society in racism. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I want to say something too about what you just said about about Rosa Parks, because there are people today that cover up the rapes and assaults. Of powerful white men uh, and powerful men, uh, you know, of all races right now. But I mean, uh, specifically a powerful white man uh, that, that still takes place today. So imagine, if you will, in the 1950s, a diminutive black woman going in to towns around this around the state and investigating sheriffs, attorneys, 
mayors, city councilmen uh, for their assaults on black women at that time. And that's what she did. And she did it so effectively that they were scared of her. Because they knew that she didn't play by the rules and she didn't play by the rules. If she couldn't get a court to prosecute them, she went to the to the media and she talked about what had taken place with them. And now a lot of the media were, were you know, white, sympathetic folks at that time, uh, including the paper that I used to work at, the Montgomery Advertiser, which was just god awful uh, in its coverage of of the bus boycott and of what took place during that time, which has been well documented by uh, our, our friend we've had on, Brian Lyman, uh, down there, who, who currently works at the Advertiser. And I, I mean, it, you know, and so there, there were some issues with that. So she would go to outside media. She would go to national media. She would go to Black-owned uh, uh, media. Uh, it, such as it was at the time. And she would expose these people. And she did it knowing full well that she, you know, they could attack her, they could do whatever. And she didn't care, man. She didn't care at all about what was going what was going to take place. She knew what she was doing was right. And that's the same reason she didn't get up out of that seat on that bus that day was because she was right. She was within the law to sit in where she was sitting. She wasn't outside the law. It was her right to sit there, but, you know, because there were no other seats. And that was the law. And so, you know, I I just to me, it, it those people like Rosa Parks that that did those things. And they they knew full well that they faced death or injury or, uh, you know, persecution, uh, to the point where they would never work. They could, you know, they could go hungry. Uh, they, you know, they would be imprisoned, uh, beaten. Uh, it, you know, they did it. They did it knowing that they, that's what was going to happen. And you know what? She was living an okay life. She was, she could have gotten by working the way she was working and not done any of that. You know, she was she worked uh, at, you know, for the NAACP, you know, with, with, the, with the youth movement in Montgomery. She was a seamstress. Uh, and, you know, and so she was she was OK. And but she, she was knew it married. was wrong. I don't know what her husband did, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, I but mean, and, and those people, man, well, I mean, the, I, the idea that we would honor people like. Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and these other Confederate assholes with with monuments mm-hmm. instead of these folks is is such a an affront and, and and it is so indicative of of the attitudes that we have and and the what CRT would address you know and it's just it's it's shameful and it's really discouraging a lot of the time. Well, it is, but we we keep the fight going. And and speaking of that, uh, you know that, uh, and some of our listeners know that I am um, the spokesperson for the Rosa Parks Committee of Huntsville-Madison County. And we, every year, we commemorate uh, Mrs. Parks' birthday. And we did that on uh, December the 1st um, of this year, and which was just um, a couple days ago. Uh, and then um, on December the fifth, this podcast gonna, is going to drop on Friday, December the third. Is that third. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so on Sunday, December the fifth at four p.m., we are actually going to be doing a virtual program, which you can see on our Facebook page, the Rosa Parks Committee of Huntsville Madison County 
public Facebook page. <clears throat> and during this program, we're going to be doing a live interview with somebody that I know, Josh, you know well and have a lot of respect for, and that's attorney Fred Gray. Nice. Yeah, we're going to be doing that. So we will learn even more. <coughs> Pardon me, for those of us who don't know, we will learn even more about Mrs. Parks' legacy because attorney Gray was Mrs. Parks' attorney. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they, they just unveiled a, a nice uh, new memorial for Rosa Parks outside of uh, the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I believe is, is owned and uh, operated by Troy University. Um, hmm. And and it's uh, it's it's really neat. It's a really, really neat uh, little memorial that they have. There. If you, the advertiser and uh, I believe WSFA have got some uh, some good photos and video of that memorial and that service. And Fred Gray spoke, uh, spoke at it as well. And uh, and it was a nice uh, little tribute. Um, it's, you know, I, you know, I could I could go kind of on and on about that, I, and I have you know in the past, and it's just because I it, it really bugs me, and it goes back to our whole sanctity of life conversation that we had at the opening uh, of the of the show, and it just you know it that's a sanctity of life issue as well, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's uh you you teaching people what led to to the situations in which we're all currently residing is is a life issue it, you know understanding your neighbors and understanding the people that you live with other human beings um is is a very important part to me of uh, of the society that we we live in and that we want to build and if you don't understand each other then you're going to have a lot of misconceptions uh, and preconceived ideas that are very often wrong about people uh that lead you to stupid ideas and lead you to leaving people out um, and I think we've done that way too many times. And the idea, you know, when you teach kids about these atrocities and things that have gone on and t- and point out to them uh, the deficiencies in our justice system, for example, uh, and, and the biases in our justice system that have led to, to some of the problems that we have, those, those kids don't hate themselves. That, nobody thinks like that. They don't hate themselves. They hate the system and they want to try to fix it. You know, that's what every single time when you talk to them about this, that's what they talk about is how they can fix it and how they can work better through it. And that's that leads to actual change and making things better. And, you know, what it eliminates is the idea of people using these false narratives and and stupid racism to divide people and and to you know continue to get votes over you know, stupid monuments and shit like that. That's what it actually dies. And I think that's what the, where the fear lies. Yeah. All right. Um, You know, we were going to do we were going to talk about the the school shooting uh, this week. Uh, I mean, you know, another one. Uh, But, you know, we were kind of running out of time. And it's just we live in the state that has the the fifth highest gun death rate per capita in the country. And, uh, you know, we've we've got this romantic feeling we have towards guns is, is, is killing us and going and going to continue. And I, you know, I'm not an anti-gun person. I just don't think that right. when I, when I carry one that I'm suddenly Superman. Right. All right. Yeah. We've romanticized it without, without a doubt. We've romanticized the gun and the use of the gun to our detriment. And, um, and you know, what I don't, what I don't understand is why, I mean, why we can't find or agree on a happy medium here 
You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a society where people have a right to buy guns. I think what's wrong is a society where people can buy guns without almost any, it seems as though without almost any personal obligation to treat guns as responsibly as we even treat our cars. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have to have car insurance. Yeah. You have to, you know, you have to, you know, you have to take a driving course before you get behind the wheel of a car. Yeah. You know, if you're driving drunk or you're driving without a license, you know, there are penalties for that. I mean, we've got all kinds of rules and regulations in place for driving and for cars and nothing. Well, I won't say nothing, but virtually nothing, relatively speaking, virtually nothing for the use of weapons or to own a gun. It's just you juxtapose the two and you're like, really? Yeah, it's 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 insane to me that someone who's never owned a weapon, never taken a training course, never doesn't even know how to load the gun for the most part, could right now walk into a Walmart and buy a gun. And all the ammunition that they would want without anybody keeping track of any of it and walk out, or actually stay in the store and start carrying it around on mm. their waist. You know, because we're open carry here. So you can, as long as you leave it out invisible, you can carry it around anywhere you want to. The ins- that, that's insane. I mean, yeah. it's, the, there's no person. I don't care how pro-gun you are. There's no way you think that that's safe. And and not it, crazy to think you take a course for God's sakes take a safety course that you have to pass to make sure that you're okay to carry the damn thing. I mean that you know the basics of you know how to hold the weapon and use the weapon and the, how the safety works and how how you should store it and all. But I mean and, you know and I, I I there was a great bit by this comedian. Uh, and I cannot remember the guy's name, who said, we all know, every single person, every gun owner out there knows of at least one other gun owner who they know should not have a gun. Uh, you know, and, and you know, like when that guy shows up to the range, everybody's like, all right, Fred's here, let's get the hell out of here. Uh, you know, because that person is dangerous with a gun, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. And and we all know that that's, that's true. And this but we don't treat it that way. And this this idea that there's going to be this hero with a weapon somewhere that's going to stop, you know, mass murder is really, really far fetched. And well, it, it's it's not only far fetched; it's really just simply not true. I mean, I can't remember the exact which one of those shootings it was. It may have been one that happened in Atlanta. Um, maybe you or our intrepid producer can help me out here but um there was a there was a a case where at a mass shooting a police officer yeah arrived at the scene and did not engage well it's parkland right when is the parkland shooting you would expect a law enforcement officer to do right yeah and you're thinking well where's the you know if this guy's wearing a uniform and he's mm-hmm. got a weapon, and he's licensed to carry, and he's supposed to be intervening in these sorts of situations and refuses to do it. Then why in the world would we assume that that's everybody's, uh, you know, everybody with a gun, um, you know, automatically is going to be there? 
Now, our intrepid producer says that uh, there were school resource officers present during both Parkland and the shooting that just happened this past week in Michigan, I think it was. Yeah, Michigan, yeah. Um, so again, you know, just having people with guns there, you know, whether they're brave enough to intervene or not, doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have a disaster, mm-hmm. a horrible situation, or that people are automatically going to be safe. It's just not the case. There, there was a case, and I'll have to go back. I wrote about it, and because it, this was probably seven or eight years ago uh, in New York City. I want to say it was in Brooklyn, uh, but I'm not 100% sure about that, in which a couple of police officers uh, located a a fugitive of some sorts who was, uh, they were outside of an apartment building, uh, and they started shooting at each other. And I, they they exchanged, uh, and they, they, these folks were not far apart. And a, and I want to say the one of the, at least one of the police officers, if not both, were were former military, and they started shooting at each other. And they they exchanged some astronomical number of rounds. I you know I don't know what it was, fifty or sixty or something uh, number of rounds on a New York City street uh, mm-hmm. in in broad daylight. And the only person who was hit was a bystander who got hit in the ankle. Uh, and I, I mean, and so that's, you know, I go back to that a lot and, and to other cases like that where, where you see these, uh, these exchanges of gunfire in high intensity situations. And it, it, it's, it's foolish to think that you're going to behave in this heroic manner. Um, in, in those instances, when you see people who are well trained and deal with those, uh, those intense situations on a daily basis, falter in them because you know that's just the way life works. You know, I mean, your your adrenaline starts flowing, you're scared for your life, and and things happen differently than what you think is going to happen in your head. Um, and it always to me, the solution has been a reduction of the number of weapons that could kill people. Um, you know, I know that's crazy. Uh, but, you know, I, I think maybe limiting the, the number of weapons that we have out there might do some good uh, yeah. he, here or there. I, I know it's wild. Uh, yeah, it's uh, sort, of a, sort of a revolutionary idea, Josh. I, know, I don't right? know if That's, the people are ready for that. I, I, it's just, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to ban all guns or anything else. But, I mean, you yeah. know, maybe if we could figure out a way to reduce the number of them and the number of people that are out there with this attitude of uh, that they're going to be the hero bystander is, yeah, that would be a good thing for us. But. All right, uh, right wing nut. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's Lauren Boebert. It's you know uh, uh, the she's she's been the right wing nut forever, uh, and she's our she's this week's right wing nut for us because of the completely racist shit she said about Ilana Mar uh, last week about you know she and she fabricated the story. Uh, too. Uh, this this never happened. She claimed she got on an elevator at the Capitol and Omar was on the elevator and she said she looked over at her and was like, well, she's not wearing a backpack, so I guess I'm safe today. Implying, of course, that because she's not a white lady, that she must be a terrorist. Um, and, and it's just the most hateful, racist, bigoted shit. And people in the Republican Party have excused it. They've courted it. Um, and, and now they are apparently okay with it. Uh, they have a, a person there in their ranks that they, nobody is, as, as I can tell, nobody, nobody in leadership has spoken out about this. 
nobody has condemned her for saying these things uh, because, you know, we're coming up on an election and God forbid you alienate the base of racists that might vote for you. Um, and because that's more important. In the meantime, Omar has, has received thousands of death threats uh, and at a press conference played uh, a voicemail uh, in which somebody had uh, called her office and, and basically guaranteed that she was going to die um, soon. And so, yeah. Well, let me, let me just toss in here. Now I think you're right that, you know, McCarthy um, hasn't stepped up and said anything or any of the other more prominent Republicans, but there is a guy He's a Republican out of New York. He's a congressperson, uh, Congressman Tom Reed um, of New York, Mm -hmm. called, um, he said that this behavior has to stop, talking about Boebert, and he called the behavior, quote, a pox on all of our houses, unquote. And uh, he said here further, I condemn the kind of comments that were made by my colleague in Congress towards a fellow colleague on the other side of the aisle. This is a pox on our houses. We have degraded to a point in the institution of Congress to a level of hate I've never felt before. Pretty strong words. Yeah. Not coming from the right person. Right. I mean, you know, God bless him, but not coming from Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Yeah, the the leadership of 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 the party on you know uh, anywhere you know or you know not even some of the more prominent faces of the party uh, right. you know and uh, that's that's you know because we we know what what's going on here we know what they're doing they don't have to say it out loud we know what's what's going on here they're courting that kind of voter they're they're courting the kind of voter who were the people who were sitting in that room when Bobert said this and she said it twice and in both yeah. instances. The people applauded and laughed and clapped. I mean, and, and you know, and, and hooted and, and all this nonsense. And so that's what they're courting, you know, and that's just that's just the reality of it. And, you know, I, it's it's a shame, but it, it'll come I, it'll come back at some point. And I mean, I, you know, I, I guess maybe it came back on January the 6th to some degree, but uh, not that anybody has yet faced any consequences of that. So. Well, we're getting closer, though. We seem yeah. to be getting closer. If and and Meadows, by anybody, I mean elected people. Right, right, right. But I think uh, we're getting closer to, um, you know, well, let's see what happens when Mark Meadows gives his deposition. Let's see what comes out of that. Uh, there yeah. could be some, yeah, I don't know, maybe some interesting things that come out of that, huh? We'll see. And uh, and Ali Alexander's, which should be interesting as well. Oh, that's another one, yeah. 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 In yeah. fact, that's who I was actually thinking about, Alexander, not Meadows, Alexander. Yeah. Because she's the one that I think, or I'm sorry, he, it, Ali's a he, right? It's yeah, A-L-I, he is, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's the one that um, that said that, um, and that's who I was thinking about. He's the one that said that our dear Congressman Mo Brooks, mm-hmm. along with some others, uh, I think Louis Gomert maybe, yeah, Louis were Gomert, directly yeah. involved in the planning of the rally and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and some other rallies around the country. So. Yeah. 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 We'll, uh, we'll see if anybody's actually held accountable. Uh, you know, I, I honestly, I have some doubts, but you know, I'll, I will, we'll see how, how it works. The, the depositions and the testimony should be interesting nonetheless, but, um, and I think that there, we, we will probably find a couple of Congress people who were in contact with the folks that were coming in the doors that day. Um, and probably our right, our current right wing nut of the week will be one of them. So. Wouldn't be surprised. 
I wouldn't either. All right, let's slide out of here. Uh, we've kept y'all way too long. Listen, we've given you bonus uh, this week since we were off last week, so we've given you bonus time. Um, and, uh, you know, you're welcome. That's free, uh, as is the rest of the podcast. And uh, until next week, uh, y'all be safe out there. Peace. Peace.